Hello and welcome to Science Unscripted. It's Connor here. And Gabe. And uh, we got a couple emails about the show, the last show when you weren't here, Connor. We, we talked about status symbols and how they're changing with a researcher out of Dusseldorf. They're becoming, over time, more immaterial. That's, okay, yeah. Yeah, so it's not the, the, the Porsche or the Mercedes-Benz. Experiences. That I'm, that, I'm, that I'm driving or the watch I've got on my arm. It's more lifestyle, uh, like, for instance, eating vegan uh, or having more time, it's that. Travel? That's how you can, yeah, where you've been, what you know, that's how you gotcha. express yeah. your your rank in society, as it were. And, and we got from one of our listeners here, said, Hi, Gabe, I loved, loved your show about status symbols. My symbol is my 1982 VW Vanagon Westphalia camper van. Oh, nice. It doesn't have granite kitchen countertops, a full bathroom, king-size slide-out beds, or air conditioning. Heck, it doesn't even have cup holders. But she still loves it. Well, it is it is a status symbol. If you drive that vehicle, I know what yeah. kind of lifestyle you probably lead. It's yeah. A, yeah, I can I can see that. Yeah. And then there was the guy who said, I, I listened to Science Unscripted. That is my status symbol. That is probably, for a lot of people, the biggest <laughs> status symbol out there. If you listen to the show and you talk to people about it, your social status, your social stock rises. There's no other way to put it. We got a final email here, um, or the final one we're going to read anyway, from deep in the Rocky Mountains the U.S. Rocky Mountains. Yeah. And uh, just listen to your podcast. Randall says, by definition, I don't know what to call my lifestyle. My sixth grade teacher said I needed more than one friend. I said no. My choice, no desire for politics, religion, friends, money, cars beyond transportation, cities, sport teams, colleges with reputations, marriage, children, alcohol, smoking, or drugs. What I do care about, the environment, different cultures, traveling, staying in hostels, Zimmers, I think like the German word Zimmers. I don't know what that means. Like Using rooms or yeah, wood? Or? I, I don't know what that means. Using my body for po- my body power for hiking, et cetera, et cetera, backcountry skiing. And this part I really like, have a good heart, help people, friends and strangers, never angry, just twice in my life, airline pilot for 42 years, instructor pilot, went home happy every night, giving 100%. And there's more, but that's enough. Appreciate your show listen a lot. Wow, Randall, can you imagine being able to count the amount of times you were angry in your life on one hand? Oh, I'd need a lot of hands. <laughs> I'd need dozens and dozens and Tentacles. dozens of hands, lots of fingers. Okay, we got some signs. Yeah, what, what do we start with, me? Um, no, let me start with one on... Uh, You've got two there. I've, I've, I've just got one. Yeah. and got a quickie. And this one, I think, is really important for uh, almost half the human population. Uh oh. And this is related to morning sickness associated with pregnancy. 70% of human pregnancies include morning sickness, nausea, and vomiting. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's really debilitating uh, at, at best. At worst, you can actually be hospitalized. One statistic that I couldn't believe is that it, this is the leading cause of hospitalization in early pregnancy and the second uh, leading cause of hospitalization during a pregnancy overall. So this is serious. Okay. Yeah. And uh, there haven't been very many advances figuring out what, what's going on there or how to, how to treat it or cure it. This is a big breakthrough published in Nature. Mm-hmm. And they have connected it to a hormone. This is GDF-15. I'm going to mention it a couple times. Okay. Um, that is received in your brainstem. That's like where it docks on. Yeah. 
And um, it is associated with, you can see if, if you take the blood of a, wo- a woman who's pregnant, you'll see elevated levels of GDF-15. In, in all pregnant women, this, this happens? This goes GDF up. GDF-15, okay. GDF-15 and goes up. And some people or some women react negatively to it and some other, others don't? Or Correct. That's what's interesting. Okay. Why is that the case? And, yeah. and to be clear here, the causal factor, what they believe is the causal factor, is that it's just really abundant, this GDF-15 mRNA in placental mRNA, way more than other tissues, and then it's just kind of, I don't know, dispersing throughout the body. Mm-hmm. So what they did is first they looked at the outlier women in, in this case. The ones who don't get morning sickness. Or who get it really badly. Okay. And here is, this is, for me, it was completely unexpected. What I would have thought is if you had higher levels of GDF-15 yeah. before you got pregnant, then it gets super elevated. Now you're, like, you're really sick. Off the charts, yeah. Right? The opposite is the case. If you have higher levels of GDF-15 prior to pregnancy, your body deals with the extra dose better. Yeah, because of the exposure you've had to it, maybe you're, you're, you're better able to deal with it? You're desensitized. Yeah. Okay. So knowing that, what can we do? Well, what they did is they took a bunch of mice and they divided them into two groups. You got the control group, they're getting nothing. And then you, got, you have a group of mice. And they elevated in some mice uh, their levels of GDF-15. Before pregnancy. Uh, in this case, they didn't actually get them pregnant because okay. one way of measuring how GDF-15 affects you is just nausea and vomiting. And in this case, specifically with mice, do they want to eat, yeah. right? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. nobody wants to eat when they're nauseous. No. And so they upped it in some mice to, let's just say, 5,000 units. Normally, it's much lower, and they, they upped it to 5,000 units. Okay. Then they gave them a super dose, something, let's say, equivalent to getting pregnant. Yeah. Now, it jumps up to 20,000. In the mice who had previously been exposed to it, they dealt with it better. They still ate more food. Okay. Not, not as much food, but they ate. They, they were doing better. The mice who hadn't been exposed to this stuff beforehand, they're Didn't like, look, keep that... Bo- Swiss cheese. No, bolus is the, my new word. It was a bolus of food, a, bo- <laughs> a little ball of mouse food. Yeah. Keep that bolus out of my face. I don't want it. So what they have kind of shown here, demonstrated here, is that, yes, this, this probably is the causal factor of the nausea and GDF-15 by the way if you undergo chemotherapy is also it's also connected it causes nausea there as well so but back to specifically to pregnant women this suggests not only a prevention which in in this case people who have low levels of GDF-15 could be given increasingly high doses of the hormone leading up to pregnancy while trying to conceive okay got it so this could be part of the future oh we want to get pregnant okay then take this pill yeah Yeah. exactly Um, but also a treatment. That's what surprised me because I was thinking, how do you, how do you, if you're already pregnant and you're feeling terrible, it's all elevated. How would you deal with that? And the treatment is to block the effects of GDF-15 during pregnancy. They mentioned an antibody. I think you could probably also block possibly the receptors in the brain. Hoping that that would not have any damaging or deleterious effects on, on the pregnancy or on the person per, taking the, the well, pill? Well, it would be weighed against the damaging or deleterious effects of undergoing this during pregnancy yeah. on your child, right? You're, you're, um, you're losing fluids, your yeah. electrolytes are all off, you're not eating as you should be. So I think that's what physicians would be comparing and then making a decision based off that. But it is phenomenal news, again, for the 70% of, of people who go through this horribly debilitating experience as part of the pregnancy. Pregnancy should be, it's going to be hard enough. You don't yeah. need that. And this is a, uh, this. Yeah, not adding nausea on top of it. Yeah, that's, that's yeah. awesome. So great news. All right, we're g- let me play you a couple sounds here, or clips of yeah. sound, yeah. and you tell me whether these chickens are happy or exasperated. <laughs> okay, that was the first. That was the second. Here comes the second one. 
Wait. Okay. Ha- I think the first ones were happy, and the second ones were exasperated. Is that, is, is that the frustrated. language? Frustrated. Let's just say frustrated. But is exasperated the language that they use yeah, that, in the that study? Was, that was the word used, yeah. Or frustrated as well. Exasperated <laughs> is different. Than- <laughs> Those two clips, they were from the Poultry Extension Collaborative. It's a network of, of academics working in the field of, of animal welfare on, on farms, livestock, chickens. This study is from the University of Queensland. They were looking into whether human beings can, by just hearing the sound of a chicken, understand its emotions. Whether they can know which animals are happy and which ones are frustrated. And the 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 assumption beforehand was that we we possibly couldn't, or what did the did the data show that we, like most most people can? There there is research on on human beings being able to understand the emotional expression of some animals. Chickens were not included in that research. Now yeah. chickens have been included. This builds on research. It, yeah, that 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 human beings can understand the way that animals express emotions. So they had. A bunch of volunteers that were recruited. They're from their professional volunteers, so they are in the field of livestock. Okay. Either farmers or yeah, they're in the field, and they were played these clips. Sixteen different recordings of these clips. Again, half these animals were happy, and half these animals were frustrated. Now, how do you do that? I was going to say, how do you frustrate? Okay, a here chicken? we go. Here we go. So then, on the on the other side of a door, they had a bowl with either worms. Or chicken feed, which is going to make the animals happy. So they, they swing the door open, they, make, they play a beep or a buzzer first, and then swing the door open, and the chicken sees this reward. Hey, great. Those are happy chickens. After going through a number of trials, they know that a reward's coming. For the other chickens, it just sucks to be in this group. I mean, science has its, <laughs> is tough sometimes for some groups. The other chickens, the door swings open, they get dust. Like, or, no, or nothing. Like a bowl full of and dust. And they just learn over time that the door swings open and they get dust. You know, so of course they're, they're angry. And over time, after enough recordings were built up, they played the two different recordings for these people. And 70% of the people listening knew or were, were able to, to correctly identify happy chickens and exasperated chickens. I feel like I could, I could identify that even without training. Yeah. Right? Well, that's the thing. So th- not everyone in the group. So there were some professional pe- volunteers in the group, also people with absolutely no experience yeah. with chickens were also able to immediately understand the emotional expression of chickens. Not everyone, 69% and of the group it was the older people who weren't as good. Right. And I'm assuming that might be because of just, you know, bad hearing, pitch that they weren't hearing as well. Pitch, the ability to hear pitch drops with age. Yeah. And speaking of which, we've talked on the show about a similar study but with mammals. Yeah. And the question was, why Why can we tell that they're distressed? Generally, the answer was their calls go up in pitch. Yeah. And that that's what we're referencing here. It, that it's built into their DNA. This, I mean, Darwin was talking about this in the 1860s and 70s, that it's part of the tree of life. Is species were, through adaptation, they learned how to vocalize emotions. And now cross-species, we're learning that we can do that as well. That's because there is research on tree frogs, alligators, chickadees, ravens, African bush elephants, giant pandas, macaques, domestic pigs. We we heard that study out of I believe Copenhagen or Denmark, Denmark yeah. where they are already using artificial intelligence to monitor these animals in their farms, and now this leads to possibly in the future this these kinds of assessments, vocal vocal assessments being used to promote animal welfare or make it better. Because I think about it right now. This minute, 140,000 chickens were killed around the world. 202 million chickens every day 
are killed. There are a lot of chickens on farms, and if this kind of technology can be used to make sure that they're better, that their lives are better up until they're the final moment, then why not? Yeah, that is the future. And it's a better one for chickens. And on that note, or on the note of animal welfare, we talked about how I had two studies to talk about today. Mm. We have run out of time, unfortunately. Yeah. One of them is in my hand right here. And it is connected to Veganuary, which is a new thing for me, a new word f- for me. I don't know if people Going out there... Going vegan through, throughout January. Trying it. Trying right. it out. Yeah. So if anyone is trying that now... Please send us an email and let us know how it's going because we're going to talk about one aspect of it in next our, week. Right? Yeah, in our next broadcast. Tell us if you're doing it or if you're not. Su at dw.com. And how about this? Also, what you think of vegans, right? Because that's that's, that's yeah, what that's the a better one. What do you think of people who eat a vegan diet? <laughs>